Well, good morning, church. Come on, you do better than that. Good morning, church. Glad you're here this morning. I just want to say, first of all, I'm so thankful for our church. Can we go ahead and get the lights up? That'd be great. I'm so thankful for our church because I know last week uh, we let you know in the 11th hour about shifting and going to the Oviedo campus, and you guys did a great job. And so I'm so thankful that we have a church that is flexible, that is portable, and that is willing to make shifts and adjustments as needed. So thank you for being that church. And that speaks not just to Sunday morning, but also to your heart to serve and to love on our community. And so I love you, and I thank you for that. And today, we're going to finish the series, Winning, Getting Game Ready. And I just want to kind of remind you, because maybe some of you, it's your first time here. If it is your first time, my name is Doug, and I'm the East Campus Pastor, and we are thrilled that you've joined us today. But we've been talking about this idea of winning for like seven weeks now. And the idea of winning is not some kind of prosperity gospel idea that, hey, if you believe it long enough, if you have faith, and all of a sudden God's going to give it to you. No, no, no. By winning, we're talking about those small moments in life where God works in us and through us to bring honor and glory to his name and to his glory. Now, I mean, that's really what we mean by winning. So if I'm going to win as a believer, that means there's small moments in my life where God works in me and through me to bring honor and glory, not to Doug, but to bring it to him. And I hope if you're a believer, you would say, I want that to be my story, right? I want to live a life in such a way that God works in me and through me, and that when people see me and they look at me, what they see is Jesus. I hope you want that. And if you do want that, if you want winning to be part of your life as a believer, we've got to be game ready. We've got to be prepared to be used by God. So we've talked about what it means to be game ready. We've talked about being positioned. We've talked about making sure you're a player and not just a spectator. We've talked about God's game plan. And hopefully you remember God's game plan. It's Micah 6, 8, but to do justice, love mercy, and what? Walk humbly with your God. That's God's game plan. And then we talked about the next week is taking the game plan and putting it into practice, right? And then we kind of pivot and said, if we're going to be game ready, yeah, we've got to do those things, but we've got to realize if we're going to live for the Lord, we're going to have to be willing to deal with pain, right? Anybody gone through pain in your life? Anybody? Eight of you, right? I mean, come on. How many have gone through pain in your life? How many have gone through pain? No, I'll just keep that in right now. I mean, like, we all know what pain feels like, right? We've all gone, but if we're going to live for Christ, there's going to be pain, which led us to what we talked about two weeks ago. And that's if we're going to be game ready, we've got to have a commitment to be persistent, to never give up, but to keep keeping on. Now today, I want to talk about one more thing as we close the series. I want to talk about victory. And I want to talk about true victory. For example, if you are in a sporting event and you're winning the, the battle, like for example, I played football. I know that we've used the football analogy all the way through. And so if you don't like football, I'm sorry, I'll pray for you. No, I'm just kidding. I mean, uh, it's, it's an analogy that just kind of stays with us. Um, but at the end of the day, I remember my football coach would say, Doug, and to our offensive line, the more plays we win versus the plays we lose up front, the more points we'll score. And on defense, the more plays you win on defense versus lose, the less points they'll score. And at the end of the day, what you hope to achieve is victory, right? And so I want to talk about victory today because I feel like maybe one of the greatest struggles in the Christian life is when you and I look at our lives and we say, okay, maybe I'm trying to lift the Lord, but when you look at our life, all you see is pain. All you see is hurdles. All you see is obstacles. 
But when you look at the world around you, you don't see that. When you look at the world around you, you don't see people that are, that are living for God, like they're excelling and they're, and they're being blessed. But what you see is they're going through pain too. But when you look at people who aren't living for God, it feels like those are the people. They got it all figured out. It feels like those are the people that God is blessing and God is prospering, right? And so I think one of the greatest struggles for you and I as believers is that we struggle with, okay, when I'm trying to live for the God, I feel like I'm still struggling. I feel like I'm still going through difficulty. But when I look at people who aren't living for God, they're the ones that are prospering. And so when we talk about this idea of victory, maybe the reason we struggle with the idea of victory, because it seems like the world is winning and we're what? Losing. Maybe the reason we struggle is because we have the wrong definition of victory. Are you with me on that, church? Maybe the reason we're, lo- we're struggling is because we have the wrong definition of victory. And I want to look at a passage today. It's actually my favorite psalm. It's a passage of a guy that has the same struggle that you and I have with this idea of victory. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to the book of Psalms. Psalms 73 is where we're going to be today. It's one of these passages I love coming back to because there's so much depth to what goes on. But Psalm 73, and you can stay seated because it's a lengthy psalm, and we're going to cover the whole thing. But as we go through this psalm, I want us to look at what is true victory? If I want to be victorious, what does that mean for me as a believer? Now, you already know if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you have victory over death, hell, and the grave. Amen, church? You already have that victory. But what gives me that victory. What does victory look like? Look what it says here. And first of all, there's three things I want you to know. The first one we're going to see is this guy's going to make a true statement, but with a wrong understanding. He's going to make an extremely powerful true statement, but he completely misses the understanding of the statement. Look what it says in verse one. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Now think about it. just what he said for a minute. Truly, God is good. In other words, I am confident that God is good to those, the nation of Israel, to those who love him and are pure in heart. In other words, I believe from the very fiber of my being that God loves, cares for, and is good to those who love and live for him. Do we believe this this morning? Come on, do we believe this this morning? Sure we do. Sure we do. We all believe that we believe from the depths of our heart for those of us that are trying to live and make a difference for the name of Christ that God is good to us. But this word good provides a little bit of a problem. See, he makes this true statement that God is good to those of Israel who are pure in heart, that God is good to those who love him and live for him. We believe that with everything in us. But the word good provides a little bit of a struggle. Let's go back to that verse if we could. The word good there in the original Hebrew language is the word tov, and it has absolutely no definition. Now, I like words. And if you looked in Webster's good, you're going to come up with a definition. But in the Hebrew, the word tov has no meaning. In fact, another way it can be translated is that surely God will bless Israel to those who are pure in heart. So it's this idea that God is going to be good to and he's going to bless those in Israel, Period. No definition. He doesn't define what good means or blessing means. He doesn't find that. He just makes this this powerful statement, truly God is good to those of Israel, or blesses those of Israel who are pure in heart. But this word good is undefined. Now, hopefully you and I, we, we have the benefit of having all the Bible, right? 
And hopefully you and I can look through Scripture and go, okay, instead of me defining what good means to me, or what, like for example, sometimes we all kind of fall into the boat of, well, if God's going to be good to me, or God's going to bless me, it looks like this. And hopefully we're mature enough in our faith, we don't do that anymore, right? Because what we do is we just know that if we live for God, is God going to bless you? Is God going to be good to you? Is he? Yes. And we find ourselves living our lives looking for those moments of blessing, don't we? Looking for those moments where God is good to us. We don't try to define it because if you define it, you're narrowing the scope of what God can do for you. For example, I've said this before. When my kids were little, I had an addiction. It was called Toys R Us. I loved Toys R Us. I would go to Toys R Us all the time, and I guess I bought them out of business. I'm not sure, but I love Toys R Us. I would go, anybody else like Toys R Us when your kids were little? Oh, there's a few godly people in the room. Okay, so I love Toys R Us. I loved it. And James, when James was like four, I would take him into Toys R Us, and I just love seeing their eyes light up. Now, forgive me, I have three boys, so we kind of like grossed out on the girl aisle. We would cover eyes and just kind of girl aisle, girl aisle, and we would move on to the boys aisle. But we'd go through there, and James would go, Daddy, I want this. Daddy, I want that. Daddy, I want that. Now, he probably didn't know half the things he said he wanted, but he wanted them. He's wanted them. Now, let me ask you a question. Did I want him to have those things? No. I want him to have the entire store. Are you with me on that? See, his narrow view of blessing and goodness of his dad did not compare to the blessing and the goodness that I thought of as his dad. Are you with me on that, church? See, we hopefully have grown enough in our faith that we realize, I don't want to define how God's got to bless me or be good to me, but I'm going to look for those blessings. I'm going to look for those goodness as I live my life. Unfortunately, the writer here, as we will see as we go through this, he tries to define what goodness looks like. In fact, for him, he grew up and he was in the nation of Israel. Goodness to them or blessing to them could have been any multitude of things. It could have been, um, it could have been the protection from enemies because Israel had a lot of enemies. It could have been uh, not only protection from enemies, but the fruitfulness of the land because when they got into the promised land, they didn't know how to farm. And so God's goodness could have been that God's going to bless our land, bless our crops, and we're going to grow. It could be freedom from sickness. We know that Israel, that I mean, one of the things that killed so many of people back in that day was just sickness. Here's the point. Unfortunately, this writer of the Psalms equated God's goodness and blessing to, quite frankly, worldly prosperity. Right? Because did the other nations want to be protected from enemies? Did other nations want the crops to produce? Did other nations want to be free from sickness? Yeah. So somewhere in this guy's mind, as he's writing this, he makes this powerful statement, I believe with all of my heart that God is good and going to bless those of Israel who love God. But then he tries to define what blessing and God and goodness looks like. Which leads us to verse 2 and 3. Look at verse 2. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So he's made this true statement. God is good. God will bless those of Israel. And we believe that God will bless us and be good to us. But he has a wrong understanding. He believes it's the wicked of the world that are really being blessed. It's the wicked of the world that is experiencing true prosperity, right? So for him, he has this wrong understanding. When he says blessing and goodness, he must mean worldly prosperity. And what he finds out is, I'm not experiencing that. But the wicked are. 
Did you notice what he says there? This is powerful, and some of us have wrestled with this. Look what he says. For I became envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Have you ever been envious of someone who doesn't love God, doesn't love Jesus, cares nothing about the church, and they seem to be prospering and prospering? Have you ever backed up going, I wish I had what they had? Sure we have. Right? In fact, he goes on. Look in verse 4. Look what he says. Now, now follow me for a moment. Here's a guy who's made a beautiful declaration in verse 1. But then he begins to look around. And for the next 10 verses, his heart is in turmoil. Because I believe God is good. I believe he'll bless. But that's not what I'm seeing. Now, did he have a wrong understanding? Absolutely. He thought it was worldly prosperity. But look what he says in verse 4. He says, for they have no pains until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. In other words, they have no struggles. I'm looking at the wicked of the world, and they're not going through any junk. I mean, any of you gone through some junk this week? And we got some families that are hurting and that are broken that I can't even begin to tell you who they are because, I mean, they're just struggling right now. I mean, we know what pain feels like. We know what struggle feels like. But when you look at the wicked of the world, can we not back up sometimes and go, they're not going through anything? And then he goes on in verse 5. They're not going through any struggles. And then verse 5, they are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind, meaning they face no persecution. Now think about this guy's heart. He's made this great statement, God is good. God will bless those who love him. And we believe that. But he had a wrong understanding. He thought worldly prosperity is what God was going to bless him with, what God was going to be good with. And what he found out as he looked around the wicked around him is, listen, they're the ones that are prospering. They're the ones that have no pain. They're the ones that have no struggle. They're the ones that are facing no persecution. See, for this guy, true victory was, what he believed true victory was faithful people being prosperous and wicked people being punished. But is that what he saw when he looked around the world? Come on, is that what he saw? So for him, true victory was God's people prospering and the wicked being punished. But that's not what he saw. In fact, he gets a little bit more in depth. Let's keep reading what he saw. Let's look at the, of what he sees in the wicked. Verse 6. He says, therefore pride is their necklace and violence covers them like a garment. In other words, they are proud about their arrogance. You know, how many of you ladies have a precious necklace? Any ladies have a precious necklace? Somebody gave it to you. It meant a lot. Okay. Uh, husbands, if you didn't see their hands going up, you probably have something to do over the next few weeks, right? You've got a precious, I mean, and when you wear it, do you wear it covered up and hidden and stuck way down, or do you wear it out where everybody can see you? You wear it out, why? So people go, oh, let me see that neck, oh, that is, that is beautiful. Well, you know, let me tell you who gave it to me. And he says, that's the wicked. Man, they are proud about their arrogance. They are proud about how they are being disrespectful. Verse 7. Their eyes swell out of their fatness. Their hearts overflow with folly. In other words, they just pursue whatever they want. I mean, if they want it, they go after it. And quite frankly, they get it. I mean, they have no worries. And then he goes on. Look at me in verse 8. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. In other words, they speak ill of others and they take advantage of others where they can. Now think about this. Do you know people that fit this description? Yeah. And has there ever been a moment you backed up and go, okay, I know this is true. I know, God, you love me. 
I know you bless me. I'm trying to live for you. I know you're good to me, but God, that's not what I'm seeing. I see people who don't love you, God. They don't have pain. They're not going through struggles. In fact, God, they're arrogant. And they're like, they're mistreating people. They're taking advantage of people. I mean, can you see his heart breaking as he looks at the world around him? I hope you can. Then he says this in verse 9. They set their mouths against heavens, and their tongues strut through the earth. In other words, they even blaspheme the name of God. That's pretty wicked, isn't it? Look at verse 10. It says this in verse 10, 10 through 12. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is the knowledge of the Most High, behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, and they increase in what? They increase in what? Riches. In other words, the wicked have no accountability, and they continue to increase in riches. Now, you think this guy was distraught? Come on, you think he was distraught? Have I made you distraught by going, yeah, I know that, right? Because he starts off with this profound statement. It's like an outward declaration, then inwardly he begins to look around and go on, but that's not what I'm experiencing. That's not what I'm seeing, right? And look at his conclusion. I love this. This is maybe one of those painful parts of the book of Psalms. He says this. All, everybody say all. All All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. In other words, listen, as I know this to be true, and as I look at the world and I don't see that happening, here's my conclusion. I have lived a life of faithfulness in vain. I've kept my hands clean and my heart pure, and none of it matters. In fact, I'm the one who's been stricken by God, not the wicked. Now, come on, just be honest this morning. Have you ever felt like this guy feels? You know what is true. But when you look around, you don't see that. In fact, you might come to the same conclusion. Hey, God, I'm trying to live for you, but the more I live for you, the more junk I go through. God, I'm trying to live for you, and the more pain I go through. God, I think everything I've done and everything I believe, it's vanity. It's all in vain. It's worthless. In fact, God, I feel like I'm stricken, not the wicked. Now, I'm just telling you, some of you in the room today have felt that way. Are you feeling that way? But I want to caution you on something. Look what he says here in verse 15. If I had said thus, I would speak thus, I would have betrayed the generations of your children. This is a really interesting phrase. What he's saying is, while I'm struggling internally, I had enough sense to keep my mouth shut. Can I tell you, this guy was going through a crisis of faith, wasn't he? what he knew to be true and what he saw, and he's struggling. I mean, if you read this in the original language, there is depth and struggle in what he's saying, but he has some common sense. He goes, if I had spoken that to your children, I would have betrayed them. In other words, if I had let my crisis of faith come out of my mouth and I had worked it out out loud with other people, I would have caused them to have crisis of faith. Now, I want to say something to you. This is important. Then we're going to move on. For those of you in the room We've had moments of crisis of faith. Listen to me. Those things don't need to be talked out with people who are trying to figure out this whole Jesus thing too. 
Because all you're going to do is create more doubt and more confusion, and you're going to lead them down a path of Christ's faith. You need to go to people that are strong, that are mature, and are deep in their faith that can help you walk through this journey. Don't just vomit your struggles, because somebody else is going to pick up and take up those same struggles. See, the thing about this is, this guy was struggling, and I think we can all resonate with that. I think every single one of us can resonate with the struggle that this guy went through. So many times as followers, we, we can look at the world and go, okay, those who are living for the God, for God, I don't see prospering, I see them losing. And those that are wicked of the world, I don't see them losing, I feel like they're prospering. Here's the misunderstanding. You ready? Listen to me. He had a true statement with the wrong understanding. Here's his wrong understanding. True victory means worldly prosperity. And his understanding of God's goodness was wrong. And if you think worldly prosperity and you not receiving that is God striking you and, and you know, ostracizing you and not being good to you, you have a wrong understanding of victory in your life. But what I love about the psalm is it doesn't stop there. Wouldn't that be terrible if it stopped right there? Wouldn't it be terrible if we just ended there going, well, that was a great morning, wasn't it? I mean, it doesn't stop there. I want you to get into the head of this guy. He starts with this great statement, and then he backs up, and he sees things, and he's struggling. But he's careful with what he says. And then look what happens. This is my favorite part. We next will see a true statement with a right understanding. A true statement with a right understanding. Look at me, verse 16 and 17. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to be wearisome to me. In fact, when you pause and you begin to think about why the wicked of the world are prospering and you're struggling, is it fatiguing to you to think about that? Is it alarming? Come on, church, is it fatiguing to you to think about that? Sure it is. But look what he says here. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned therein. In other words, I had a moment of clarity. I had a moment of clarity. I was trying to figure this stuff out. And guess where I went? I went to be in the presence of God. And when I got alone in the presence of a holy God, God began to work in my life, and that's where I found discernment. That's where I found the right understanding of what I was saying. Hear me on this, church. If you're going through struggles there's one place that you need to go this morning, and it's into the presence of God. See, this guy, this psalmist, he makes this great statement, has this huge struggle, but instead of like vomiting that information to everybody else, what does he do? He goes into the place of worship. He goes and he gets alone with the holy God and says, God, I need you. I'm struggling. And it's there and only there that he finds the discernment he needs to understand what real victory is and what victory is not. He had a moment of clarity. And then he has another moment. Look at me in verse 18. Truly you set them on slippery places. Who's the them there? Who's the them? Who's the them? Come on. It's the wicked, right? He says, truly you set them on slippery places and you make them fall into ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment. Swept away utterly by tears. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord. When you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. And I know he says, I, he, there's a moment of clarity, but now there's a moment of truth. And here's the moment of truth. God, what was I thinking? I know you deal with the wicked. I know you're not prospering them. I know you're not blessing them. God, I know that because what I know is you're going to put them on slippery places. 
You're going to follow them to ruin. You're going to destroy them, God. You're going to wipe them away, God. I, I, what would, I, know what I, I don't know what I was thinking, God. But I have a moment of truth. See, when I got along with God, I had discernment. And that discernment helped me re-understand this true statement. My wrong understanding went away. And now I have a right understanding. And here's what I know. Does God prosper the wicked? Does God bless the wicked? Is God good to the wicked? Oh, God, you are going to judge them. God, you are going to punish them. God, you are going to discipline them. And then he has another moment in verse 21 through 22. Look what he says here. When my soul was embittered. In other words, I was wrestling. Come on. Some of you in the room today have gone through moments like this where you've been struggling in your faith. And he says, when my soul was embittered, when, my, when I was pricked in the heart, I was a brute beast and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. He had a moment of confession. Did you hear what he called himself? What did he call himself? A beast and ignorant, right? And ignorant. It's like he's saying, listen, God, I don't know what was going on in my head. I mean, I know this to be true, but that's not what I saw. And even though I struggled, God, I got alone with you. And God, you helped me discern this. And God, I want to confess to you that my thinking and my way of looking at the world was wrong. I was ignorant. Ignorant doesn't mean stupid. It means I just didn't know. And I was a beast, meaning I was bold. And I was wrong. And we have a moment of confession. And what we learn is that right understanding is this, is that victory isn't worldly prosperity. That true, listen to me church, true victory is not worldly prosperity. True victory is not worldly prosperity. So he went from a right, wrong understanding, now he has a right understanding. But there's one more thing as we close I want you to notice. And that's that he makes a true statement about true victory. Look with me in verse 23. I love this. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards, you will receive me to glory. He says, you hold me. You counsel me, God. God, you're the one that's been guiding me. See, here's what the psalmist is saying. He says, listen, I understand that true victory is not freedom from sickness. It's not protection from my enemies. It's not fruitfulness of the land. True, freedom, uh, true victory is not worldly prosperity. Listen to me, church. True victory is being in relationship with you. That's where we probably should say amen. We're going to try that again. That's where we should say amen. Because listen to me, what he discovers is that true victory is not this worldly stuff. Because guess what Jesus said? All the worldly stuff goes away, doesn't it? All the worldly stuff goes away where, where rust and moth can destroy. But what this psalmist understands is that true victory is not having all that the world offers. It's knowing that I'm in relationship with the Lord. Did you pick up on what he said there? It's you. You hold me by my right hand. You counsel me. And one day you will receive me into glory. And I just want you to know this morning that true victory, true victory is being in relationship with Christ. So if you're a follower of Jesus today, you are victorious. 
You're victorious, yes, over death, hell, and the grave. But you're victorious not because of anything you've done. You are victorious because you are in relationship with the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That's what true victory is. And then the psalmist doesn't get enough. Look what he does next. He just keeps on bragging on God. Look what he says in verse 25 through 28. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion. How long? How long? Forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who's unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. He says, listen, with this right understanding, here's my conclusion. Because I now understand that true victory is knowing that I'm in a relationship with you. Here's my new declaration. There's nothing this world offers that I want besides you. There's nothing in heaven I desire besides you. And I just want to ask you this morning, if you're a follower of Jesus, do you feel that way? Do you, do you understand? Do we understand? Do I understand as a body? Do we understand that true victory is not the acquisition of worldly prosperity and worldly things, but true victory is being in a right relationship with Jesus because it is the only relationship that will affect our eternity. It's it. And if we have that and we understand that, can you make the same declaration the psalmist made? That there's nothing on earth I desire. Besides you. There's nothing in heaven I want. Besides you. You are my strength and my portion and my refuge forever. So this morning, I just want you to hear me. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you know Jesus is your Lord and Savior, I pray that you can look to this passage and let it inspire you. Let it bring you back to center. Maybe you've had a terrible few months. Maybe you've had a terrible few weeks. Maybe you've had a terrible last couple of days. I don't know what you're going through, but I know this. As a believer, it's really easy to get caught up in what we think we know to be true, which is true, and look at the world around us going, but that's not what I see. I don't see God blessing his people. I see God blessing the wicked. And we can get wrapped up in that. It's because we have a wrong understanding of victory. True victory is being in relationship with him. And if you know you have that relationship, you should be inspired this morning. You should be liberated this morning. And quite frankly, you should do what the psalmist said he wanted. Look, what did he say there at the very end? What was the last thing he said? So that I may tell of all your works. If you feel like he does, should we be telling of God's works as we leave this place? That's not a rhetorical question, should we? Yes. Yes. In fact, in a moment, at the end of the service, Cameron's going to come up and kind of go through some announcements. He's going to talk about something really big for us. Next week is friend day. We're going to have an incredible day. We're going to have breakfast. It's going to be awesome. But we're, we want you to invite your friend. And that's why on every seat, those weren't reserved. Those seats had a friend day card. We want you to invite somebody and say, we want you to be here. Why? Because we're going to share the only message that can change anyone's life and anyone's attorney. It's the message of Jesus next week. We're going to, it's all we're going to do is talk about what Jesus has done for us. And we want you to invite your friends. See, if we really want to win in life and we're going to be game ready, shouldn't we take the message of Christ and go invite people to hear it? Come on, church, shouldn't we do that? Sure we should. So my prayer for every believer is if you're struggling this morning, that maybe God would change your mind on what true victory is. 
And in doing so, that he would inspire you to go tell of his works as you leave this place. And then if you're here this morning and you've never trusted Jesus, listen to me. I don't care what you have that the world has given you. It will fade away in the end. In fact, I think Jesus said it the best when he said this. Are you willing to gain the whole world but yet forfeit your very soul? Man, you can have all the stuff the world offers. But if you don't have Jesus, you don't have anything. And maybe today for the first time, you need to say, I want true victory in my life. I want a personal relationship with Jesus. It's just this easy. It's just easy as saying, Lord, I know, you're, uh, know that you, what you've done for me is true. I know that you died on a cross. I know that you rose again. And I ask you to forgive me my sin and come in to be the boss, the master of my life. And if you will do that, he will change you. And today, not tomorrow, but today, you can experience true Victory. So let's stand together. Everybody stand with me if you would. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this Psalms. And God, I guess the reason I like going back to it so much in my life, because I feel like I struggle like he does. I know that those that live for you, you bless us, you're good to us. And again, I just want to be honest and transparent, but there's sometimes I look at the world, I look at people in the world, and I feel like you're blessing them more than you're blessing your people. But God, I pray that we can all have an epiphany like this psalmist had. An epiphany that happens when we get into your presence and we get alone with you and you give us wisdom and you give us discernment and you remind us that true victory has nothing to do with worldly prosperity, that true victory has everything to do with being in a personal relationship with you. And so God, if we're believers, may we celebrate that today. May that excite us today to be reminded that you are good, that you do bless us, and all we need is you. God, I pray that we leave this place today with a new declaration of life that, God, there's nothing this earth can bring me that I desire more than you. God, if we believed that, we felt that way, and we lived that way, our relationships would change. Our decisions would change. Our investment in people to share them about you would change. So God, I pray for believers. I pray your Holy Spirit would wreck our hearts this morning. That you wreck us and remind us of what true victory is. And we as believers, we have it. And how dare we not share it? So God, would you motivate us this morning? And then God, I pray for those who don't know you. That you would just remind them that everything the world offers is vanity. It's fleeting. It all will wither away. But if they want to experience true victory, not just victory on this earth, but victory for all eternity, they need Jesus. God, would you help them make that decision? God, would you just be with us this morning? I know there's some here today that are hurting, that are wrestling with some stuff. God, would they just make you their refuge this morning? Would they just cry out to you as their Abba Father, their Daddy, and say, Daddy, I need some comfort today. I'm going through it. I'm struggling. I'm confused. I'm hurting. I'm wrestling with some stuff. God, I pray today for believers that we might find a moment, even though we're in a room full of people, 
to get alone just with you and let you speak to us. God, would you move in this place at this moment? For it's in your precious son's name we pray. Amen. Now this morning, maybe you just want to come pray at the altar. Maybe some of you have been through some stuff. And you've had a wrong understanding, but today you're like, okay, I get it. Today I understand that true victory is being in this wonderful, incredible, undeserving relationship with him. And maybe you want to come get on your knees and just celebrate what he's done for you. Maybe you want to come and get on your knees and say, Lord, I'm struggling and I need your strength. Or maybe you want to do it right at your seat. I don't care, but would you do business with God this morning? And if you don't know him, would you say yes? You got a handout when you walked in this morning. At the very bottom, there's a chance for you to respond. You could fill that out and say today, that when you talked about it, I gave my life to Jesus. And would you give that to me? I would love to reach out to you about your next steps. But however God is working this morning, let's be faithful. Can we do that this morning? Let's be faithful and recognize that really all we need in this world is what? It's him. It's him. And let's sing about it. Let's declare it. And let's make that our confession this morning. So as the Lord moves, would we be faithful to respond?